0: All right, everybody. Welcome back to episode two of I Mean It's Possible. And we're going to be listening to uh, Mr. Kyle here. It's his turn to present. Uh, I have no idea what his topic is. He actually sent me an email with the title, Do Not Open This Until the Episode. <laughs> uh, and as a as a man of, of honor, I have not. Uh, so, Kyle, why don't you go ahead and uh, and introduce us to what we're going to be
1: discussing Thank you, Bobby. I also want to say thank you for being a man of honor and not opening that email because it's going to be a really fun reveal. Ladies and gentlemen, today we are going to ask ourselves, is it possible that Hitler didn't die in 1945 but in fact was scuttled away to Argentina? That's our question. Where where many Nazis fled to. Oh, Already, he's already coming for the information. He's already got some to work with, which is a good thing.
0: Well, I mean, that's to be fair. That's all X Men. This is that's all
1: from like X Men first class, like Magneto killing a couple. And I'm going to say that's the last time I'm going to mention the X Men. But I want everyone to keep the X Men in their minds this whole episode because, uh, (laughs) well, let's just keep them in our prayers because we don't know what Marvel's going to do with the property. Right, at this point, um, some of the greatest characters ever committed to comics. We have absolutely no idea what's happening. I mean, Wolverine's just in limbo. What a world do we live in? But anyway, yeah, today's topic. Hitler didn't die. He moved to Argentina. So uh, that's what I'm going to be trying to convince you of today, Bobby. And then at the end, um, I'm going to ask you the magic question. Bobby, is it possible? So so that's where we're going. You ready?
0: Let's... I would love to hear. All right,
1: oh, I can hear the doubt. I can hear the sarcasm soaked in your voice, which is going to make this epic victory all the more beautiful. And and I'm just gonna I'm gonna start where many things with me start history. Okay, so um, we're gonna lay the groundwork for the possibility, like you did with our previous episode. I'm not convincing you that this happened. I'm convincing you that it's possible. And you set that precedent, which I thought was well done. And so I'm going to utilize the precedent. So I am going to open up the window of possibility and ask you to step through it and join me in a brave new world where one of the great criminals of history maybe didn't (laughs) die at all. Um, So anyway, we're going to start with a historical perspective, okay? And we're going to start with some historical context. And that context centers mostly around three men. Dwight D. Eisenhower, at the time uh, commander of allied forces in Europe and future president of the United States. Winston Churchill, prime minister of England and uh, hero of many at the time, especially in England for his uh, brave defiance and stance during the war. And uh, Joseph Stalin, leader of the Soviet Union at the time, so the year is 1945, specifically March of 1945. Okay, Dwight Eisenhower sits down at his headquarters in northeastern France. By the by, the way, this at this point the war is not won. Okay, it is on its way to being won. Almost anyone who you would ask, including most Germans, would agree the war at that point probably only had one outcome, which was an Allied victory. But it was not technically won. So March of 1945, Dwight Eisenhower sits down and he sends an unprecedented historical cable. Now, what I'm going to present to you right now is drawn almost word for word from a piece called The Death of Hitler, the full story with new evidence from secret Russian archives by Ada Petrova and Peter Watson, an excerpt of which appeared in the Washington Post. And that's where I'm pulling this information, mostly from the article that was uh, posted in the Washington Post. It's actually an excerpt of a historical novel that's about to come out, and they do that a lot. So Ada and Peter write that Eisenhower sits down, he sends this historic cable He sends it to Moscow for the personal attention of Joseph Stalin. Now, if you're thinking that seems a little odd, they probably didn't communicate very much. You're right. The United States and the Soviet Union, while technically on the same side against the Nazis by 1945, did not do a lot of communicating. And there was already a Cold War bubbling up. After the Yalta Conference, where they had decided how they were going to carve up Germany, there was already, let's call it some gamesmanship by the Soviet Union and the allies, uh, the other allies, as they start to already move their chess pieces around the board for what is probably the inevitable end of the Nazi Reich and the beginning of whatever will be after that. So this cable is a little interesting. And in it, I'm going to summarize the general points. Um, If you're interested in this, you can go find the rest of the exact history, but my my summary will be accurate. Essentially, what Eisenhower says to Stalin, and he also sends this note to Churchill, he says, I'm not interested in Berlin. I don't care about Berlin. Now, that's a pretty surprising thing to say at the time, because the Nazi Reich is still based (laughs) in Germany, whose capital is Berlin. So... The leader of the Allied forces is saying, I'm not really worried about the capital. I don't care. I'm going to focus somewhere else. He was sending this cable because he didn't want to step on Stalin's toes, and he didn't want Stalin to step on his toes. He was looking back to 1939, when at the time the Germans and the Russians had been allied, but they ended up actually fighting each other because there was such poor communication. There was sort of crossfire. There was a big mess, and they ended up with a lot of casualties caused by each other and eisenhower's thinking of this as the war is coming to an end and he's saying all right i want to keep you in the loop about what i'm going to do i want you to keep me in the loop about what you're going to do churchill hits the roof because churchill's a politician stalin's a politician eisenhower is a soldier that's right bobby he's a soldier he's been raised since 18 years old since his military training and the fight as fast as possible Do not worry what comes after. That's not your job. That's the job of the people that build the world. You're the man that protects the world. So Eisenhower is thinking, how can I cut the head off this thing as fast as possible? Churchill, as a politician, is like, what the hell are you doing? Why are you telling Stalin you don't care about what's going to become the most important city in our battle against the spread of communism? Everyone already knew Berlin was going to become a messy place where two worlds collided. Churchill can't believe it. And you know who else couldn't believe it? Stalin, <laughs> who, who was blown away, literally blown away, that Eisenhower could be so naive. He, he, uh, Stalin couldn't believe it. He literally said to his subordinates, "This he's got to be messing with me, right? This is such a bad move on his part that it must be gamesmanship, But since he said it, I'm going to act on it. And so at that point, Stalin draws all his forces and pushes them as hard as he can toward Berlin. There's a reason why Eisenhower, at the end of this war, makes the decision he makes. Now, for people who don't know a ton about the history of World War II, it's a messy, sloppy war. But by 1945, like I'd said a little while ago, it's pretty much decided. No Germans really thought they were going to win. They may have thought they... At this point, they're just going down with the ship. Right. And they may have thought they were going to make a heroic last stand with Hitler at, at, the, at the head of the column, you know, giving his last go, right? Dying on the battlefield like a champion. They don't really believe they're going to win. And Nazi command definitely doesn't believe they're going to win. There's an attempted coup in 1944 that doesn't work. Hitler wipes out 4,000 people as a response to it. He's still very much in power, but he's weakened. So by 1945, it's really just a question of how is this going to happen? Well, the Allies, specifically the Americans, had intelligence that there was a plan called the Redoubt. The Redoubt, for those who don't know what it is, was essentially the idea that the Germans were going to pull back to Bavaria, to the high, mountainous, treacherous, hard-to-navigate area of Bavaria. Turned it into a little bit of a, a guerrilla exactly. warfare. They were going to move to the mountainous regions around Munich, and they were going to fight it out. And they were using um, press releases, and they were using radio communications. Goebbels was jumping on, and they were talking about this thing called werewolves. They were saying, we are going to become werewolves. Werewolves kill, werewolves hunt, werewolves do what they need to do. And they were claiming that they were training two hundred to 300,000 former soldiers, SS officers, even youth, to become prowling werewolves of the Munich mountains, of the mountains around Bavaria. And that's where Hitler's Eagle's nest was this famed castle in the mountains that was impregnable and impossible to reach his sort of uh, hilltop, you know, retreat that he would go to. And the allies are starting to believe, Oh, this is the end game. The end game isn't Munich. The end game is the hilltop region in Bavaria where we're going to have to go slug it out in terrain. We don't understand There were rumors of mountaintop factories built into the mountains. There were rumors of guns being developed to shoot out of the mountains. All these things that the Allies are afraid of. So their movements toward the tail end of the war are not to capture the capital city because they think the capital city is going to be abandoned. They think they're going to have to go and fight a guerrilla war in the mountains. And they want to try to end that as fast as possible. They were wrong. History tells us there was no redoubt in the mountains. They had no... And also, for some people, I may, it may be redoubt. It, uh, the, the pronunciation is what it is. But there it, it didn't exist. And they end up capturing uh, a high-ranking... Wait a minute, wait a yep.
0: minute. Are you, are you telling me that the Nazis lied? Yes. They're, that Nazis
1: um, were capable of lying? Yes. And not only that... Wow. They capture a high-ranking member of the uh, German, let's call it press. He was a, a radio announcer, and they used to call him the voice of the German high command. And they capture this guy, and they say, all right, tell us about the readout. And he says, what? And they say, tell us about the readout. And he says, what? And they say, tell us about the readout. And he says, it doesn't exist. And they say, no, no, seriously. And he goes, yeah, it doesn't exist. It's a fairy tale. It was a dream we had. A dream that if we would lose, which we never thought we would, we would go out high in the mountains like heroes, with with our Fuhrer right in front of us, dying, dying at our feet as we make one final valiant stand, but we never thought that would happen, and we didn't really plan to do that. And then the Americans say, uh-oh, because it turns out that Munich... Uh, not Munich, that Berlin was still in play. Berlin is still Berlin. It's still the capital. It's still the seat of Nazi power. And it is likely still where Hitler will be found. But who's heading there? The Soviet Union. Now, we all know the war ends. The Nazis lose. The Cold War starts. Berlin's divided. We all know that. The fall of the Berlin Wall. These are historical facts that are important so to speak. But for our story, what's most important is that the Soviets are the ones that take Berlin first. Yes, there is a power share that comes after, but whatever comes after, it's the Soviets that shell it and it's the Soviets that ride into it. That's what we need to know. Because what comes after is only possible if the Soviets get there first. And that is where the seed of doubt will grow into a tree that eventually has Bobby saying, it's possible. So, keep that in your mind, okay? The U.S., the Allies, they go the wrong way. They essentially think they're going for an Alpine battle, and they're not. The Nazis are simply way too outnumbered and waylaid, and they're not actually doing that. Now, with that established, we're going to move and we are going to talk about the actual history that we can all agree occurred at the end of the war, okay? January of 1945. We're going we're gonna to spin the tape back a few months, because I had you in March of 1945 when that cable was sent from Eisenhower to Stalin. Spin the tape back a few months. January of 1945. Facing a siege in Berlin by the Soviets, Adolf Hitler withdraws to his bunker under the Reich Chancellery to live out his final days, so they say. Located 55 feet underneath the Reich Chancellery, the shelter contained 18 rooms, was fully self-sufficient, had its own water supply and its own electrical supply. And though he was growing increasingly mad, Hitler continued to give orders and meet with close subordinates such as Hermann Göring, Heinrich Himmler, and Joseph Goebbels. He also, in his final days, supposedly, marries his longtime mistress, Eva Braun, just one day before his supposed suicide. In his last will and testament, Hitler appoints Admiral Karl Donitz as the head of state and Goebbels as the chancellor. He then retires to his private quarters with Braun, where we're told he and Braun poison themselves and their dogs before Hitler also shoots himself in the head with a service pistol. A couple points before we continue. We're told they took cyanide and then Hitler shot himself. Um, the first finger raised in the air from the back of the classroom should be you took cyanide and then shot yourself it's just an interesting fact to raise it's, I mean if we're going to talk about where the word
0: overkill comes from
1: yes overkill or potentially impossible kill Um, Many people, when they bite down on a cyanide caplet, do not also have the wherewithal or the dexterity or the uh, limited lifespan left to then uh, use a service pistol on themselves. But we're told that that's what Hitler did. Now, what happens next is really the most fascinating part of the story. And it's the part of the story that makes everything else that we'll talk about possible. And that is this. After shooting himself with a service pistol, and remember, the Soviets are very quickly closing in on Berlin. They're in the city. They're coming for the Reich Chancellery. They're coming for Hitler, right? He's supposedly uh, killing himself in his final seconds so as to not be captured and dragged through the streets because he had recently heard, we're told, that Mussolini had been killed by the Italians and he didn't want to be strung up in the town square by anybody. With the Soviets sweeping in on the Reich Chancellery, he supposedly kills himself. And what occurs next, again, I want you to think about this. We are told that Hitler and Braun's bodies were hastily cremated in the Chancellery Garden by Germans as Soviet forces closed in on the building. When the Soviets reached the Chancellery, they removed Hitler's ashes, continually changing their location so as to prevent Hitler devotees from creating a memorial at his final resting place. Only eight days later, on May 8th of 1945, he shot himself April 30th, 1945, by the way. The German forces issued an unconditional surrender, leaving Germany to be carved up by the four Allied powers. Now I'm going to go to Wikipedia. Not always the most historical reference, but it's I'm using it only because it matches identically with what I just told you. So this is a secondary source. We'll call it a less likely source, but a secondary source that corroborates.
0: Sort of and confirming says,
1: the key points of your. Right. And here's what Wikipedia says. On April 30th, 1945, Soviet troops were within a block of the Reich Chancellery. A block. Think of how quick a block is. It's minutes. When Hitler shot himself in the head and Braun bit into a cyanide capsule, their bodies were carried outside of the garden behind the Reich Chancellery, where they were placed in a bomb crater, doused with petrol, and set on fire as the Red Army shelling continued." Grand Admiral Karl Donitz, who we've met before, and Joseph Goebbels assume their roles that Hitler had laid out for them in his will. Berlin surrenders on the 2nd of May. Records in the Soviet archives obtained after the fall of the Soviet Union state that the remains of Hitler, Braun, Joseph, and Magda Goebbels, and the six Goebbels' children, General Hans Krebs, and all of Hitler's dogs, were repeatedly buried and exhumed. In 1946, the remains were exhumed again, so a year later, and moved to the Schmersch units then new facility in Maddenburg, where they were buried in five wooden boxes on the 21st of February, 1946. By 1970, so 15 years later, the facility was under the control of the KGB and was scheduled to be relinquished to East Germany. A KGB team was given a detailed burial chart and on the 4th of April, 1970, secretly exhumed the remains of 10 or 11 bodies in an advanced state of decay The remains were thoroughly burned and crushed, and the ashes thrown into the Biden-Ritz River, a tributary near the Elba. According to Kershaw, the corpses of Braun and Hitler were fully burned when the Red Army found them in 1945, and only a lower jaw with dental work could be identified as Hitler's remains. Now, between between these two varying sources, we have a general account with literal seconds to spare before the Soviets storm the Reich Chancellery, which is like the capital, right? Hitler kills himself two times, double style, just to make sure it sticks. He is then buried by his uh, cronies in a shallow crater. So apparently a crater had landed so close to the Reich Chancellery in the garden that it could be used as a makeshift burn pit. He's then covered with petrol, aka gasoline. It doesn't say some high high jet fuel or something it just says petrol and he is then burned the soviets arrive they gather up all of the bodies now i want you to think of the number there was a number of children women gerbils there's dogs in there gathered up and taken and moved constantly over a 15 year period then there's a second account from the kgb always a trusty source that says, oh, he was originally burned right away. Well, then what were they reburying all that time? And why was he and Braun burned right away and not everybody else? And how easy was that to tell when he'd just been burned in a burn pit? So a huge amount of question marks surrounding the events of April 30th, 1945 and Hitler's eventual death. Okay, so that's where we are. The war ends in May of 1945. The Germans surrender. Berlin is carved up by the Allied powers. It becomes East Berlin and West Berlin. And the rest of the 20th century unfolds as a fascinating Cold War. And in a way, World War II ends. The Cold War begins. All of the key players have played their part. The living live. The dead are dead. Or so we're told. The problem is that immediately after the end of the war... Differing accounts about what occurred begin to appear. So what I'm going to read to you now is from that same Washington Post article, which was an excerpt of the book Death of Hitler by Ada Petrova and Peter Watson. And they say this. There were many sightings. Among the first, it was reported that Hitler had been seen living as a hermit in a cave near Lake Garda in northern Italy. Another report had it that he was now a shepherd in the Swiss Alps. A third that he was a croupier at a casino in Evian. He was seen at Grenoble, St. Gallen, and even off the Irish coast. Do we believe any of those? No. So, I mean, if my Bigfoot
0: sightings are are in question. Correct. The same the same goes for, you know, anybody that finds Hitler alive in a cave Off the in Irish Nor- coast. Off right. the Irish coast is suddenly going to find
1: themselves. Right. Exactly. Okay. And, and and it's fair, as you did with your uh case that you were presenting, it is fair to to point out some things for the sake of uh, honesty. One being that after a great event like this, a lot of people see a lot of things that look like somebody. You know, after 9-11, a lot of people thought they saw Osama bin Laden. They didn't. But they thought they did. And just because you say it doesn't mean it happened. We're not here saying that just because there were sightings, those sightings are credible. But the point is, a lot of people... We're sharing a lot of different information that doesn't accurately add up to the historical account we've been given by the winning side of the war. But to be clear, none of the little sightings I just mentioned are in any way a part of the probable thing I'm presenting to you today. Those are just examples of how people are seeing them everywhere. Let's move to a sighting that's a little more possible. This sighting, again from the book that I've been uh, mentioning excerpts from, This is from Karl Heinz Spaeth, who claimed he treated Hitler on the 1st of May 1945 at his Berlin Casualty Clearing Station in the cellar of the Landwehr Casino, right opposite the bunker at the Berlin Zoo. So we're right in Berlin center. Now this would be one full day after Hitler had supposedly killed himself. Spaeth said that Hitler had been wounded at a tank barricade in the fighting around the Kustrin area of the city. In his sworn deposition, he added, Hitler was lowered to the floor a shell fragment had pierced the uniform. It went through his chest and entered the lungs on both sides. It was no use to do anything. I took a few first aid bandages and bandaged him. During this time, Hitler groaned continually. He was not fully conscious. To relieve his pain, I went back to the collecting station to get some morphine and gave him a double strength injection. The general opinion was that Hitler would die. I examined his pulse and respiration and found that after about three minutes, he had stopped breathing. The heartbeats continued for about three minutes and then ceased. After I pronounced the Fuhrer dead and had formed, and had informed SS leaders of this fact, I was released and went back to my work. Shortly afterwards, Spaeth said, the surviving SS leaders blew the body into the air with two three-kilo charges of high explosives." He repeated his story to an officer of the military government who in turn reported it to Berlin in September. Everyone, everywhere, seemed determined to ignore the radio announcement that had been made about Hitler's death by Grand Admiral Donitz on the 1st of May. So this is a man who's saying, oh, I saw the Fuhrer. I not only saw the Fuhrer, I treated the Fuhrer. I not only treated the Fuhrer, I pronounced the Fuhrer dead. After he was supposedly already He'd been dead. dead for a day supposedly right. and the Reds had a body supposedly well here's the thing Hitler had a lot of doubles this is a known historical fact a lot of historical leaders have doubles there's there's an idea out there that presidents have doubles right now it's a pretty reasonable thing to do especially when a high uh, you know high priority target is traveling around a lot during Wars and things like this this was not the only person that did that back then uh, but Hitler did. It was known, have many, many doubles. Did one of the doubles die? Did Mr. Spath treat a double who had been wandering around Berlin in the chaos of the end of the war and then get shelled and look so much like Hitler that this man who's maybe never met Hitler thinks, oh my God, this is the Fuhrer. Is that why the SS leaders blow the body up? Because they know it's a double and they don't want a double that looks like a dead Hitler to be laying around? Maybe. Who knows? But they blow something up with a bunch of with a bunch of high explosives. They blow it into the air. It's an interesting thing to be doing, especially if Hitler's already dead. Why would they? Why would they be so? What's what's the subterfuge? What's it about? You're covering something up at that point. Something's going on, and this is a sworn deposition given by a man who it appears has nothing to really win or lose with this. He's he's a doctor, or he's at least a triage medic. And this is after the war, and he's giving a sworn deposition to a government witness, okay? Dis- and, and they continue to write in this Washington Post article, Dist- uh, viewed from this distance, each of these accounts appears fantastic and incredible. But that was not how they were seen at the time. Not all of the accounts were so fantastic. And here, I want everyone who's listening, and including you, Bobby, to recognize that this is the turning point, where we go from, okay, to, oh, that's interesting, that's different. That's not what I was well, taught.
0: Because right now, what you've what you've painted a picture of is uh, the you know did Hitler die on one day or one day later? You know what I mean? Like there's no real right. there's no real consequences right. to
1: sure. And that's a completely reasonable thing to be saying at this point. It's all we're really getting is a confusing mess of facts that don't exactly line up, and we're getting people saying one thing and then doing another, or people saying two or three different things. We have Germans saying one thing, we have the Reds saying another thing. Who knows what to believe? Here's another account. This account's a little different. In July of 1945, so just a few months after the end of the war, the U.S. Office of Censorship intercepts. It's a key word there. Isn't sent, intercepts. A letter written from someone in Washington, and it's addressed to a Chicago newspaper. The letter claimed that Hitler was living in a German-owned hacienda 450 miles from Buenos Aires. The U.S. government gave this report enough credibility to act on it, sending a classified telegram to the American embassy in Argentina requesting help in following up with the inquiry. Besides giving basic information, the telegram added that Hitler was alleged to be living in a special underground quarters. Sources indicated that there is a western entrance to the underground hideout, which consists of a stone wall, Operated by photoelectric cells. Activated by code signals from ordinary flashlights. Entrance, thus uncovered, supposedly provided admittance for automobiles. So essentially what they're saying is there's a wall that's activated by photo light sensitivity that opens up a door you can drive in and out of this. And it's large enough that potentially somebody could live down there. Okay? It continued that Hitler had provided himself with two doubles. Interesting. Interesting and was hard at work developing plans for the manufacture of long-range robot bombs and other weapons. A little silly. A little at the end, a little silly, like, uh, was he developing robot bombs? Who knows? The matter was taken sufficiently seriously for J. Edgar Hoover, known crazy, and then the director of the FBI, and he gets involved. Although shortly after he gets involved, he writes to the War Department, to date, no serious indication has been received that Adolf Hitler is in Argentina. Now, for a lot of people... That J. Edgar Hoover gets involved is a is a point of credibility, but I'd actually like you to concede, or to conti- or to consider that J. Edgar Hoover is a complete nut. And oh, the
0: we could do a whole podcast series exa- just on the stuff and, that he did,
1: and we might actually that season might two be. <laughs> the Hoover Chronicles. season two J. Edgar Hoover. So, um, I actually want you to consider that he's such a crazy. He's such a crazy guy. He's such a poor judge of character. He's such a poor judge of good ideas that I want you to note what he says at the end. To date, no serious indication has been received that Adolf Hitler is in Argentina. Okay. Well, I would now like to tell you the untold story of the Nazis in Bariloche, Argentina, written by Sorcia O'Higgins, January 28th, 2018, on theculturetrip.com. Now, this is a culture website. It's a travel website. It's uh, This article, I wouldn't say it's a fluff piece, but it's an interest piece, okay? But I'm using it because it provides a very interesting and honest and unbiased piece of information that we need, because this isn't an article that's looking to convince you of anything. It's just an article talking to you about this interesting little area in Argentina. And as you previously noted, Bobby, and noted well, Argentina has a fascinating connection to Germany. We're going to talk more about that, but that it's mentioned in movies like The X-Men or, you know, some different shows. There's always this kind of idea that a lot of Germans got away to Argentina. Well, we're not going to say they got away. We're going to show you they got away. So here's from this article that I just spoke about by Sorcha Higgins. okay, appeared on culturedep.com. She writes, or they write, It is a common knowledge that Argentina was a safe haven for many Nazis after World War II. President Juan Perón was a Nazi sympathizer with close ties to other European dictators such as Mussolini, and he had ranged safe passage for many high-ranking officials to come to South America in the years following the war. Many of these figures found refuge in the Patagonian city of Bariloche, and here is the untold story of how they arrived. Any visitor to Bariloche will at once be impressed by the alpine-style architecture that is present all over the city and region. This is not only due to the climactic nature of the mountainous region and the proliferation of wood with which to build these buildings, but also due to the European heritage of the area, which saw many German immigrants settle here in the late 1800s. Bariloche grew around a shop owned by German settler Carlos Wiederhold, a.k.a. La Alamein, or the German. So there was a guy who was like the first German to arrive in this this region. He was known as the German. <laughs> and as such many German speaking immigrants from Austria, Slovenia and of course Germany itself chose Bariloche to settle in.
0: So so before even before the war, even before World War II, about
1: 40 a, years before there's
0: a a German for lack of a better word
1: stronghold, foothold mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a in a region yeah. of Argentina. That's right. Okay. And this was an area that many of them were known to vacation in during and before the war. Okay. During that high point of the Nazi era, and I I say high point uh, with all the menace I can, not a good high point, but where they were sort of gallivanting around the world and spending a lot of money as they stole gold and art and all of these things. When they were living the high life uh, off of other people's blood and pain, they were taking vacations. And some of the vacations they took were to countries where Nazi sympathizers were in power, such as Argentina. And what a wonderful place to go vacation, where somebody has already set up a German encampment. Now, by the way, I want to make clear for the record, though I don't think anybody related to this man would have any problem with what we've said. We're in no way saying that Carlos Wiederhold is in any way connected to what will come after this. Right. He's he's way before that. It's just... Way before. It's, it's the idea of like if
0: there were in the in the French countryside, there was like an American Minneapolis.
1: Right. And you could like, he just you, appears. Could, you could yep. say,
0: oh, I'm going to go travel to France. And you had a place that <laughs> felt like home right away. Right.
1: Right. Without having to. He just appears to be a guy went to a new country and established a foothold that had a uh, cultural ties. Right. Which is a completely reasonable thing, and it's a very common immigrant experience. You go somewhere, you know, th- think, of, think of something like Chinatown, which is a celebrated part of New York City. It's a beautiful part of New York City. And it is both American and Chinese, and it has all of these sort of mismatched kind of cultural nuances that that show you a people from somewhere else, but now here. And the longer those roots grow, the more interesting the culture grows around it as everything sort of kind of is its own unique thing. So all we're saying is that this man establishes an area like that, okay? But what it tells us is the Germans knew there was somewhere to go. They knew Germans had already gone there they knew there was a welcoming and friendly place with people that spoke their language. They also knew that the president of that country sure did like them. When the war ends, World War II ends, and the Nazis are deemed war criminals, this area of Patagonia, both in Argentina and Chile, it's a border area, was an obvious choice for many of them to go. It helped that Juan Perón had an established relationship with Hitler and had organized escape routes called Rat Lines for the Nazis via Spain and Italy. So he organized this. So this is, again, this is from the site, theculturetrip.com, but this is a historical fact. Juan Perón was active in giving them ways to get out. So we're we're talking like an, an underground Nazi railroad. Right. Exactly. Exactly. The literal opposite of the underground railroad in that it's transporting not people desperate for freedom, but people who should absolutely be thrown in jail. So it's sort of like a horrible reverse underground railroad. And so the article goes on to say that even today, Argentina has notoriously porous borders. No insult to Argentina, just a little bit of a fact. And many expats who live in Argentina on three-month tourist visas, and there are many expats who live in Argentina on three-month tourist visas, as was the case for the Nazis who came to hide out there in the 1940s. Some were even granted residency, and many went on to actually serve in the Argentine army. Bariloche is mired in Nazi lore. Some of it true, some of it false. Now this is lore. So what we're saying is some of this is bigger than life, bigger than fact. The biggest and perhaps most outrageous claim is that Hitler fled to Argentina with Ava Braun in the Analco estate outside the town center. So the article saying, what a crazy thing, what a silly thing. <laughs> come come enjoy this wonderful country to see
0: maybe this crazy right. thing happened here.
1: Yeah yeah, but it didn't, but, but the article saying, oh how silly it could never really have happened. However, it is widely taken to be true that Hitler and Averbrain committed suicide, blah, blah, blah. That's how the article goes. And then it follows up and says, Infamous Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele spent a brief period in Bariloche before going to Brazil to carry out experiments where he created sets of Aryan twins, a strange and eerie undertaking. But perhaps the most famous and brazen Nazi that re- resided in Bariloche was Erich Priebke, an SS commander who escaped to Argentina on papers issued by the Vatican. He lived freely in Bariloche for 50 years, rising to become the director of the town's German school, Collegio Aleman. Pripka led a blissful life in Patagonia until he was tracked down by ABC News reporter Sam Donaldson in 1994, who confronted him in the street after which he was put under house arrest by Argentine authorities until he was extradited to Italy after about a year. Reinhard Kops was another Nazi living in Bariloche, who was uncovered by the Donaldson team in that 1994 ABC News investigation, and he was actually the one who ratted out Pripka, the head of the school, to the newscasters. Again, the Nazis, such loyal people. He fled after Pripka was arrested and he died in Bariloche in 2001, and that was cops. So, as the article itself laughs at the idea that Hitler could have made his way to Bariloche in Argentina, it states that three high-ranking Nazis, some of them the worst and most disgusting men of the 20th century, who committed acts of obscene horror, did themselves (laughs) escape some of them with very legally issued paperwork from european powers such as the catholic church to arrive in argentina legally and to then operate very uh it would seem upstanding lives as heads of schools as as men of influence so so what you're doing right now is you're
0: setting the precedent that just like i did with Gigantopithecus and Bigfoot mm-hmm. something like this existed therefore it's not unreasonable that it could still exist you're setting the precedent that multiple high level germans are proven right. to have escaped
1: literally so it's possible they were found the highest by BBC news German. so anyone who's listening and and very very well said bobby anyone who's listening go and look up the sam donaldson piece it it corroborates exactly what i've said about it which is that he just goes on the street it's very it's a it's a man on the street piece he's looking for this guy as word had long been spread that nazis had gone to south america like you said it's in movies and tv and lore and sam donaldson goes there and finds a bunch of them and literally just goes up to them on the street you know real street on the reporter style and says hey are you this person and it eventually leads, after the furor that breaks out around the world, to these people being extradited. And then you can go and look up what happened to them. But just like you said, Bobby, if we're, if we're to believe that Mengele can get out, and Priebke can get out, and Kopp can get out, you're telling me Hitler can't get out? If all of these Nazis with less power, less influence, less um, loyalty, less money can all somehow, legally, a few of them, get out of Europe? You're telling me that the head of Germany can't smuggle himself out? That we're left to believe that this man, hell-bent on destroying the world, just tapped out? And everyone else gets to run away? In a a weird way, suicide can sometimes be a final uh, brave act in the face of losing. I'm not saying his is. Nothing Hitler ever did is brave. But the point I'm trying to make is, doesn't he seem like the kind of rat that would run? I mean, if we really think about him, he's a disgusting rat of a person. We all know this. There's nobody on earth that really thinks highly of him. Well, he's, the problem he, is He there seems are. like the kind of... Well, that's... And, and those people, if they're listening, uh, we do not agree <laughs> with anything you think. Right. Um, because however he died, I'm glad he's dead. Um, and I can tell you, he seems to me like the kind of guy that would run. He does. He doesn't seem like a brave man who would stand well, and, in the face he's of not, an assault from he's an assault. He's not like a yeah. general dying on the battlefield. No, you know what I mean. Like you think no. of
0: you think of some of you know the
1: the great the and quote that's unquote what, great by the way that's what history. Yeah, and that's what Goebbels' radio address said after after his supposed suicide on the thirtieth. Goebbels and uh, Donitz—they went on the radio and they said he died fighting with his soldiers on the front lines in Munich. That was another another piece of that that radio address that was uh, that was um, not corroborated by Speith, who said I found him laying in the street dying. So you know, their message is all over the place. They can't even agree on whether where he was or what happened to him. Even if he had just been in Berlin the whole time, they don't even know where he's dying, right? Or maybe there's just doubles wandering around, half wounded, dying all over the place That kind of just look a like a bunch Hitler. of doubles they let out of the closet at the last minute that just like, right. scattered. exactly. If we're going to say that, that these high-ranking Nazi SS commanders can get out, we have to believe that it's at least possible that Hitler could get out. And I'm not yet asking you to say it's possible he did, but I'm simply saying the possibility is obvious that he could have, okay? So, rat rat trails established by Perón give us a pathway for any Nazi, especially the highest Nazi of all, to get into South America. Further evidence is from a book called Grey Wolf, a 2014 book called Grey Wolf, The Escape of Adolf Hitler by British author Simon Dunstan and Gerard Williams, and the docudrama film of the same name by Williams that's based on it. Now, this is a little bit of a controversial book, and I don't want to say controversial with judgment. I just want to say controversial in that it, it deals in themes many people consider to be conspiracy theory-like, the kind of stuff we're talking about right now. The book contends that Hitler and Braun did not commit suicide, but actually escaped to Argentina, and here's where it proposes how they did it. The scenario proposed is, is this. A number of U-boats took certain Nazis and Nazi loot to Argentina, where the Nazis were supported by future president Juan Perón, who, with his wife Evita, had been receiving money from the Nazis for some time. Hitler allegedly arrived in Argentina, first staying at the Hacienda San Ramon, east of San Carlos del Bariloche. Now, this is another source that mentions this town. Hitler then moved to a Bavarian-style mansion in Inalco, a remote and barely accessible spot at the northwest end of Lake Hanuel. Huapi, close to the Chilean border. And again, for anyone who's listening that is fluent in Spanish, I would like to apologize. I did not take Spanish in high school. I took French. And while it is a Romance language, I'm only butchering these words accidentally and with the best of intentions. I do not mean to insult them. I'm trying my best pronunciation, but if I'm getting them wrong, please, uh, please accept my apologies. Around 1954, Braun left Hitler and moved to Nequen with their daughter, Ursula, and Hitler died in February of 1962. So these assertions I've just said are from the book Grey Wolf. So this adds to this uh, this theory. It adds that he moved around. He was in Bariloche at a certain point. That he had a daughter or adopted a daughter. There's there's serious questions about whether Hitler could have ever even conceived a child. There are some medical records that have been floating around that say he was probably likely sterile. So this is a bit of a red flag, even for any theory it's possible that she was an adopted daughter who knows i you know it does you'd have to read the book to find the exact details of that but it says that averbon left hitler which is interesting and and kind of adds a little bit of mystique to this idea of what they were like if they had gotten away that it was an unhappy alliance or an unhappy marriage i mean What must it be like to be trapped in a house with a failed dictator (laughs) who never, I mean, like, well, that must be an unhappy marriage. So maybe she takes the daughter and leaves. This is, again, this is argued in the book Grey Wolf. This is another piece of evidence that they're, um, not, I won't say another piece of evidence, but it's another account. Let's say that word, because evidence is one thing and an account is another. This is another account that uh, alludes to the idea that Hitler arrived in Argentina, We're going to follow that with this. It's an article called Hitler in Argentina by Callum Hoare, who writes on the express.co.uk about a bunker in Argentina. This is where everything takes a turn. So I want to go back a little bit to where we talked about the U.S. government intercepted a letter that was written to a Chicago newspaper that said Hitler's living in a bunker 450 miles away from Buenos Aires. It's a very specific thing to say. So this article written by Callum Hoare cites a History Channel show called Hunting Hitler. Now, this is a show anybody can go and watch, anybody can go and find. I believe it's available on the internet, at least some clips of it, okay? So the History Channel show Hunting Hitler revealed what appeared to be a breakthrough in the case after trawling through documents. 700 pages of declassified documents containing thousands of potential new clues. The team utilizes a powerful military tool to identify a starting point for their investigation of this idea to Hitler go to Argentina. The program scans the documents for a location, then plots patterns on an activity map. So they're doing really high-level military reconnaissance on this show, uh, Hunting Hitler. Okay, And we've seen some of these shows. Some of them are silly. Some of them do a lot better job of it, right? It's, sometimes they're just fluff pieces that have a name of some historical person attached, and they say they're going to excavate something, and they don't find very much. Right. We've seen there's, these, right? There's the good ones, the bad ones. You You can
0: tell pretty early right. on from watching it what a good one and a bad one.
1: Exactly. So, you know, think of those museum heist shows with that guy on the travel channel who's always wearing like a halfway to a Indiana Jones outfit, but they never actually find anything. So setting a range from April 25th to July 25th, 1945, the team begins to troll through these documents, these released classified American documents. Okay. And they find two documents in that timeframe referring to a great underground establishment in Argentina. We're going to cut to a man named Bob Baer. He's a CIA veteran. He was uh, associated with this Hunting Hitler show. And he's quoted as saying, here's a second FBI document, but different sourcing. So this isn't the same letter. This is a different letter. It says Hitler is in Argentina. He's living in an underground establishment 675 miles west of Florianopolis, 450 files, 455 miles north-northwest from Buenos Aires. Now that's the same geographical location different letter different person two accounts same idea and this person's also giving you another city and another distance away from it so maybe they have a different uh, interpretation of the map or an understanding of from where they came or where they went bob bear again cia veteran says when you have two similar reports that match it's something mr bear cross-referenced the two coordinates mentioned in the files and the computer and he identified a close the closest community to these coordinates, right? So we're looking at 455 miles west, northwest of this, 650 miles you know, away from this. And he's looking at the map and he's like, what's close to that? What's in the area of that? And it's a community called Sharata. So the team heads to the city and they meet with a local author and historian whose name is Juan Alberto, who had spent decades investigating the area as a local historian. He tells them, in 1970, a basement was discovered on a farm east of Sharata in rural land on a farm owned by a German family. German family discovers this basement, he says. They found weapons, banners, documents. Private investigator Steve Ramban believed it was a breakthrough in the case. He said, there is an FBI memo that says there was an underground bunker here. And now this guy, who is a historian in the town, tells us the same thing. All of a sudden, this is possibly not a wild goose chase. The team heads to the farm to take a look at the underground cellar, but they were hit with conflicting testimony from the owners. The owners tell the translators, this basement is right here, but there's nothing. It's impossible. It it was all merchandise. Since the original owner, this has been a goods store. It's a general store. But Mr. Ramban was not convinced and he asked to take a look at the basement himself. He notes, this is Mr. Ramban, why would you have a store in the middle of nowhere? You're miles and miles and miles from town, and you set up a shop? It makes zero sense. We know during the 20th century that the vast majority of the inhabitants of this area were German. 70 years after the war and these people are terrified to tell us anything after heading below the floor the team are shocked to find the space so well kept u.s special forces soldier tim kennedy who's associated with this project as well said that he had seen similar structures while hunting terrorists in the middle east He stated in 2015, my expectation of a root cellar underneath a farm is going to be some shoddy, muddy type support with some wood beams and a dirt floor. That couldn't have been further from the truth. The construction was very, very well-made. Well-made walls with brick and cement and gigantic thick overhead beams with tile on top of them. The bunkers that I've seen like this were in Baghdad, Iraq, and they have subterranean features that look very similar to this site. It's very I mean, suspicious. To say nothing for German manufacturing and craftsmanship, you know? It's like. Exactly. Exactly. Now, again, are we saying that Hitler spent 40 years in this basement? No, we're not. Especially if you're on the run, you're probably not going to stay in the same place forever. But we have two separate class- classified documents that say look here, look 450 miles away from the capital. They go there. They find people unwilling and untruthful when questioned about the nature of a seller. How many rural stores do you have that have Nazi paraphernalia in them? Doesn't really make a ton of sense. In an area that was mostly German, you find the exact kind of bunker type seller you were told that you were going to find. This is not the final piece, but it is the most important piece for me in the question of is it possible because i think it's fair to establish that we have some very shoddy record keeping with the soviets about bodies where is it was it burned well, and they
0: have they have a reason to oh, falsify that stuff because now you're talking about sure. you know the hearts and minds of the people if hitler's still alive there's still hope there's still whatever but it's a lot yep. easier to say yeah that's right hitler took the coward's way out shot
1: himself and, and yep And we're going to get to a very interesting reason why the Soviets said what they said. We we, we established why Eisenhower sending the cable he sent was so important. Because it doesn't allow the Americans to arrive first in Berlin and clear the scene and figure out what's going on. Now, I'm not sitting here saying that the U.S. government, and we will definitely cover this the rest of this podcast. I'm not saying the U.S. government is the uh, arbiter of moral integrity and honesty and openness. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is the Western narrative may have been a little less um, cloak and dagger. It may have been a little clearer because of the nature of the two countries. While the United States is definitely up to its neck in nonsense from a government point of view, it is not nearly as cloak and dagger and shadowy of an organization as the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. I think... Even even the most ardent critic of the U.S. government, there has to be a
0: ranking system somewhere of like, like (laughs) even if America's number two, even if we come in two, the Soviets were number (laughs) one. Like if you're ranking these shadow government organizations, we're up there. We are right. We are in the elite. Yes, we don't take home the
1: championship every year. We sure don't. And 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 of all of the leaders of the Soviet Union that really got up to some (laughs) secretive shenanigans, Joseph Stalin is like. Oh boy, who could be in charge when this happened? It's Stalin. So so we set that as the stage that everything builds off of because from that moment we do not have clarity about what happened to the body of Hitler. During his supposed suicide, which creates a vacuum and in that vacuum lives the possibility that something else occurred, not to mention all of the sightings and confusing narratives and misdirection and miscommunication. We have very clear pathways from Germany straight into the heart of Argentina that high ranking Nazi officials used. We now have multiple government documents that say, please go look at this basement 450 miles away from the capital of Argentina. And when they go there, they find a basement that doesn't exactly meet the local basement standards, it exceeds them. Let's say it exceeds them so, so that we do as little accusing as possible and, and we stay as much as we can within fact. It's a basement that maybe raises the eyebrows of a bunch of special forces operatives and CIA experts. When they see it, they go, oh, that's it's a, interesting. It's a basement it's right that where if you a, were told a normal
0: homeowner went down and saw, they'd be a little jealous. They'd be like, man, right. my basement floods. Right. And so, I've got mold and mildew. Meanwhile, this basement in the middle of Argentina right. nowhere is like watertight, right. airtight.
1: Got a bunch of paraphernalia in it and documents mm-hmm. and all kinds of stuff. And it's supposedly a general store. Very strange little situation. So, and again, we're not saying that Hitler lived in this basement and never saw the sun for the rest of his life. We're not saying that. We're saying that somebody maybe knew he was there at some point and said, hey, go look, he might still be there. Or you might find a trail you can follow to find him. Obviously, whoever sent this letter was not a fan of Hitler because they were trying to dime him out. So I think we should view it credibly as somebody who hoped he'd get caught if he, in fact, were alive. We have evidence from others that say he went to Bariloche for some time, that he was there in this great Nazi encampment that we know was written about as a German enclave, On multiple sites not even historical sites and again these sources almost confirm each other accidentally without even knowing the existence of the other they sort of place us in an area that sounds a little more german than argentinian so now our final little piece of evidence if you could please sir go to the email i sent you but don't open it just yet we're going to talk about a man named philip citrone So there's a declassified CIA document dated 3rd of October, 1955, that highlights the claims made by a self-proclaimed former German SS trooper named Philip Citrone. He says that Hitler was still alive and that he left Colombia for Argentina around 1955. That's the time he makes the accusation. He's saying that Hitler was in Colombia and now had gone to Argentina in 1955. Enclosed with this document was an alleged photograph of Citrone and a person he claimed to be Hitler. On the back of the photo was written Adolf Shuttlemayor, or Shuttlemayer, and the year, 1954. The report also states that neither the contact who reported this conversation with Citrone nor the CIA station was in a position to give intelligence evaluation of the information. The station's chief superiors told him that enormous efforts could be expended on this matter, with remote possibilities of ever establishing anything concrete and the investigation was dropped. Sir, would you open that email? Who okay. That's the photo that the man handed to a CIA station. Now, I want to say very clearly, Philip Citrone's claims of being a former SS off- trooper, they are they have been disputed. Okay? I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm not here saying that. I'm saying this is an actual document that has been shared that a man claimed he met a person named Adolf Schuttelmeier in the year 1954. He reports it a year later in 1955. He gives the whereabouts of this man, saying he had gone um, from... Colombia to Argentina. So now you're maybe laying out this map of he's bouncing around these safe haven South American countries. He's never staying very long. If he arrives in Argentina in 1945, he may have left for Colombia in 1948, 1949. He may have gone to Chile. He may keep on the move so that he's never in one place. But this man is saying that by 1955, he's leaving Colombia and going back now, to for Argentina. The, for the viewers
0: out there, okay? I do want to say that this is a... A uh, remarkable picture, while not in, uh, you know, 8K quality, this is not the highest quality photo, given the time frame of its taking, it does appear that if someone were to ask you to picture Hitler in your mind's eye, right, with all the depictions you've seen, even if you haven't seen a real picture of him, like a real, like the, like there's the the Ava Braun uh, recordings and stuff, even mm-hmm. if you haven't seen a real picture yep. of him. Just from his depictions and what you might picture in your mind's eye, it's it's someone that is not trying to not look like Hitler. Like, and in a in That's a time right. where you know that mustache has still not come back, that that mustache has still nope. not
1: been able to make it. Except Michael Jordan know, in the Haynes commercials, he really made he, he tried, really gave it. A but go. even Jordan couldn't do it. So. <laughs> People always point to Jordan's arrogance, and they're always like, oh, he's so arrogant because of his game on the court. And I always point out the most arrogant thing he ever did was try to bring <laughs> back the Hitler mustache. He made a real effort. That tells you what he thought about himself. You know he looked at himself in the mirror. He's a smart man. By the way, Michael Jordan's a very smart man. He, he, he went to North Carolina, UNC. He, he went there for a number of years. He knows what Hitler looks like. This is a smart man. An, he's a billionaire. He's a billionaire. This is not and an some, ignorant And he's got fellow. like brand some ambassadors. athletes people. You,
0: you know there's people he around you sure who looked at him and said, you know you're rocking a Jordan." Is stage, right? Yeah. And I bet he looked at him and said, yeah. yeah, I know. He looked
1: in the mirror. Exactly, Bobby. He looked in the mirror one morning and said, if anyone can do it, Mike can do it. <laughs> he said, I can do it. He said, I'll do it. I'll bring it back. Someone's got to bring it back. It'll be me. Anyway, and I'm, we're obviously joking. <laughs> I don't think that Michael Jordan was in any way trying to do that. It's just funny. But the point being, he is the only other person. It's Charlie Chaplin, Hitler, and Michael Jordan. They're the only three people that have tried that and mustache Chaplin in the did 20th it before century. Everybody else. He was before. So you can't even he blame sure him. Did. You can't even say, like, so, wow,
0: Charlie, way to, way to try it <laughs> no, no No, he was rocking that before. Yeah.
1: Nobody even tries to shave it within the curves of the lip. You got to let it go over the lip, otherwise, someone—even if it's not—someone will say it's a Hitler stash. Even if it's longer, yeah. If it's too straight across, it's not good. The only one that tried was Mike because he knew he was undefeated at that point. You got to think of his life. He's never lost. He's thinking, "I could do this." But anyway, <laughs> anyway. So this this photo—it's—it's it's not. I'm not using it as a as an example of any one thing. I'm using it as as another piece in what I genuinely believe is a long line of evidence that muddies the picture. And in that muddy picture, we arrive at the question, Bobby, after having heard everything, after having heard about the uh, shoddy and uh, politically unwise motives of Eisenhower to end the war, Quickly, which allowed the Soviets to take possession supposedly of a body after the establishment of rat lines from Juan Peron, after the porous Argentine borders, after the very real and credible accounts from Sam Donaldson and ABC News that Nazis were living in Argentina as respected members of the community as recently as 2001. Is it possible that Adolf Hitler did not die April 30th, 1945, but in fact, fled to Argentina.
0: I mean, it's possible. It's possible. Yeah, it is. Isn't it?
1: Oh, it's, it's, I know (laughs) as I was researching, here's the thing. Okay. So, so as we, as we tally this, that's one win for you on the last episode. That's, I pick up a win on this. I pick up a dub today, but just as you allowed me to do, I'm going to allow you for record, both historical and for the internet. Do you think he did?
0: The possibility is there, right? Because like you said, you've opened the door with enough. It's not that there's such hard evidence. It's that there's such murky evidence. Mm -hmm. And once it's murky water, you can't quite tell how deep it is. I couldn't tell you, like, yeah, okay, high-ranking German Nazi officials fled to Argentina. I couldn't tell you what any of them looked like. I sure as hell could tell you what Hitler looked like. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. I, I understand the connection you're making, but the idea that mm-hmm. the most well known villain in, you know, human history right. that has been depicted in media yeah, for That's fair to call him know, that so many years, all different forms of media could yeah. hide out is is straining the possibility enough. So if you were yeah. to ask me, do I think he did? Right. No. I I I haven't crossed again we're going that 0 to 100 scale probability wise. I haven't right, crossed yep. the the 50% threshold that would make me lean on the side that I think he probably did. But if we're talking about right. the before and the after, you took me from before I probably would have been at, you know, 20%, 25%. Okay. So that's a pretty high probability you were suspicious not suspicious but you had questions. And like, I didn't know the details that you've, that you provided, but I was aware that right. that there was enough murkiness to, so hearing, hearing enough details to, to really solidify that, you probably pushed me to like 35%, you know what I mean? Like, again, not enough that if anybody asks me, like, you have to pick a side right now, I'm going to say no, like he died right? in and around that time, you know what I mean? Right. Like, one of the surprising things you said was the jaw. Right. And that was just kind of like glanced over real quick yeah. in your in your opening. But like the idea that if you're gonna fake a death, what do you need? You yeah. Need dental records. Right. Like the idea right. that the only thing that's right. gonna survive from you yep. is a
1: lower jaw. Okay. Right. Well, and that's the interesting that's it's you bring that up and that's such a good segue. So very quickly, I wanna say I do not believe he escaped to Argentina, right? And again, for the people listening, as you continue to listen to this podcast, we're both trying to, we're almost steel manning for those who understand the the idea of rhetoric and argument. There's the straw man argument and then there's a the steel man argument. So we're sort of steel manning these conspiracy theories to test them. And the question is, can you steel man it well enough that it holds up to any scrutiny? I would say that I did as good a job as I could steel manning this for, for scrutiny. But even I don't believe that he escaped to Argentina. But I definitely learned more. And I definitely come to a place where I would say, if you continue to find more evidence, I'm going to get to that answer a lot faster. I've got a lot more questions than I had answers. But I do want to speak for a second to clarify the record about a number of pieces of evidence so that Anyone who's listening doesn't try to throw this at us and say, oh, you didn't do your research. Wrong. I did. One of the key components that has always been held up as proof that Hitler shot himself and died is that the Russians held fragments of bones and skull and jawbone. And that was what they said they had. And the, and the skull, which was held that they said was Hitler's, had a bullet wound in the parietal lobe. I asked for the correct pronunciation of that from my fiance, who works, uh, who works in brain science, and it's the parietal lobe. So she was interested that it was the parietal lobe. She actually put a gun to her head where the parietal lobe would be and seemed um, interested that that was where he'd shot himself. Again, after taking a cyanide capsule, that skull was tested recently, and it was found that it likely belonged to a woman. And uh, the Russians, in response, said, well, you can only ever really get a 55% certainty on a skull. We never said it was Hitler's. Yeah, yeah they did. They, they actually did. They said they had Hitler's skull. And then when we tested it, and it wasn't a man, they went, oh, we never said it was Hitler. It's a whole bunch of people in that burn pit. Well... At the time, at least. You Maybe did not. say it was Hitler. And a huge p- Right. And a huge part of us believing this monster was dead was you saying we've got his skull. To, to be clear... The best piece of evidence that Hitler did die that day are dental records. There was two teeth. If you look it up online, they'll say it's it's um, like a, a bridge with two teeth on it. Dental records from him and Ava Braun. Now, they were shown to his former dentist, who, like, decades later was like, oh, yeah, that's Hitler's teeth, all right. First off, teeth that have been through a burn pit, that have, that have been moved, to like that were apparently in with a bot Yeah. That we're in with a body that was ground up. We were told the body was ground up. That's why we don't have anything else. But a set, apparently two teeth survived and someone picked them out. But anyway, they were shown to his former dentist, his and bronze, and they were confirmed to be the teeth. And then there was also an independent French study of the teeth, which said they were undoubtedly Hitler's. And it was based on an X-ray of his from when so he was a little, alive a little bit more credible of
0: a third party.
1: So, to be clear... Sure. And and I don't mean in any way to denounce any of that science. I am not myself a scientist, and we do not hear say one way definitively or another. Again, the title is It's Possible. So we're opening up the window of possibility. You brought the history, you brought the
0: the history research, which I which I, you know, very much expected you. from you. I would say that you, you you argued your case very well.
1: Thank you. And, but and and I just want for the people out there because the the internet is a ruthless mistress to be clear uh both of us have said and and genuinely do believe that he very very likely died in Germany at the end of the war probably by his own hand and uh and long may he remain uh dead <laughs> um you know but it, it listen it was a fascinating subject to to research it was a fascinating subject to look into uh I was a history major in, um In undergrad, and I I enjoyed it. I found out a lot of things I didn't know. I definitely I found out a lot more about the Nazi connection to Peron and Argentina. Now, like you, I had always heard the rumors of Argentine German sort of overlap, right? But that's not just a german thing there are italian immigrants that went to argentina like a leonel messi one of your favorite soccer players his family is a hundred percent italian by blood i think i think he's i think he's just italian by ancestry but but nationality and generations have made him very argentinian but like he's italian even in his name his name sounds italian so that's not a unique case for argentina there are other examples of expat communities from europe but the german one has always been tinted or tainted with this nazi color this idea that this was where they went and hid because they were safe because no one was going to go looking for them because they were the government was sympathetic to what they had done and I found this idea of these rat lines, the idea that the Nazis were giving Perón money, which gave him incentive to create the rat lines, well, the rat trails, and the idea for that, him like, to get them out.
0: Why would the allies go searching for him when they've achieved victory? right? Why are you going to open that can of worms and saying, yeah, guys, we won, but they all got away? right?" And now we've got to create international right. incidents trying to yeah. find these people in other countries it's much easier to just say, "Yeah, guys, we kicked their ass. Let's let's start carving up this this countryside." Exactly.
1: Like I said before, and like you said, I think he died. I think he died in 1945. I think he got clipped, or at the very least, he got clipped, clipped himself. Even if it wasn't, you a, know,
0: like got clipped by high- maybe yeah. maybe he yeah. took the cyanide. Maybe and he he's that pissed body. off one maybe. of his officials, and as while he's laying there, like maybe his official. Yeah. That's how he got the in the back of the yeah. head.
1: And maybe he was that guy out in the street that that doctor treated. Maybe the guy who made the... Maybe that was actually who he was. And they blew it up because they're like, oh, God, he got out. (laughs) Like, you know, who knows? But anyway, um, it was a lot of fun researching this one. And thanks for being game with it. You you brought
0: it because every part of me came into this wanting to win. But I'm also going to be honest. So you, you moved the needle. And that's enough to make me say, I mean, it's possible. I appreciate it, dude. I really do.
1: So this was a great episode. Had a lot of fun. Until next time. This has been I Mean It's Possible with Bobby and Kyle, a podcast where two friends try to uh, see if they can get each other over the line on the other side of some of the weirdest conspiracy theories on the Internet. Our podcast is written and produced by Kyle Maxwell and Bobby Anderson, editing and mixing by Bobby Anderson. Our music is provided free. And uh, we appreciate you all. Please like, rate, and subscribe, share, comment, do anything you can. And so uh, until next time, Bobby sign it off.